0: Good morning, and welcome to Redemption Church. Redemption Church is 10 congregations throughout the state of Arizona. Uh, Altogether, we are one church who believe that all of life is all for Jesus, Uh, and we're thrilled to have you with us. My name's Paul, I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're in the room or if you're joining us online, so glad that you are with us, but it's good to be together, isn't it? Yes, this group. Okay, I'm looking at you. Okay, all right. It's good to be uh, together. We're going to continue our series in the book of John. Before we do, I just have one thing real quick. It's such a joy for me uh, to be able to come and say thank you to you after we have a M25 collection Sunday like we had last Sunday. So, whenever we do this, you just show up in such a massive way. Your generosity is truly overwhelming. Uh, So, we had over a thousand food items that were brought in. which helps us to, yeah. So I think it's like 60 something boxes uh, of food and we're able to give that to the town of Gilbert to help them replenish their food banks uh, that have been diminished because uh, our neighbors who have just been suffering through uh, COVID, pandemic, just stuff that's going on. And so we have a very tangible way to be the hands of feet of Jesus, which is what M25 is all about. It comes from Matthew 25, which is just God's uh, instruction to us to show up in the world Um, as Jesus and uh, bless people in really tangible ways. So thank you. I love being able to say thank you uh, for that. Well, in Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, uh, Dr. King was in prison for nonviolent demonstration against segregation. And while he was there, he writes this letter. And in that letter, he's addressing criticism that he got from white religious leaders uh, who had called the things that he was doing unwise and untimely, meaning they were saying, look, Dr. King, they don't like you there in Birmingham. This is not a good idea. This isn't prudent. This isn't wise. This isn't what you should be doing. You'll probably be imprisoned or worse. You should probably sit this one out. And so Dr. King writes this response and uh, he said, I usually don't write responses to this kind of criticism, but uh, just so you know, first of all, I was invited here uh, by the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. And secondly, and maybe more importantly, he says, I'm here, I'm in Birmingham him because injustice is here. Meaning he's saying, the reason I'm here is because this is what I've given my life to. There's an intentionality behind what I'm doing and why I'm here. I know the stakes, This is why I'm doing this. It's the same attitude that we see in Jesus as he's marching towards the cross. If you've been with us, particularly in the past couple weeks, and you've seen the chapters that we've worked through in in what's known as Jesus' just kind of passion moment, he's already said, in essence, isn't this hour, isn't this weekend, aren't these days the whole reason that I came to planet Earth? And what we need to see as we get into our passage this morning is that Jesus is radically intentional. He's not the victim of a series of unfortunate events. He is the Lion of Judah. And the cross, death, sin, Satan is his prey to devour and defeat. Let me look just real quick again at the passage at Deb wrote. We're in John chapter 18. John chapter 18. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, you're not maybe familiar where the gospel of John is. It's in the New Testament, which is in essence the second half of the scriptures. So it goes the book of Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then John. And we're in the 18th Chapter there this morning, uh, and as we continue in John this morning, we're really only going to look at two verses, um, and and then we're going to take a an intentional look um, at the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. We don't always take Sundays like this where we take a look at a particular doctrine, but we're going to do that this morning. The passage speaks to that. Now, now doctrine uh, is a way, and this is a very simple understanding, but but doctrine is a way of underst- understanding and. Describing the true things that we believe about God. It helps us understand the principles behind these truths that we believe about God. In good doctrine, Matters. It's important because it helps you to understand in a deeper way the God you claim to follow. So, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, uh, we know that what the how the Bible talks about Christianity or the way that we follow Jesus, it's not just simply like an addendum to our life. It's not just something that's added on. It's not just a a line or a box that we could have checked off. Uh, The Scriptures say that when you follow Jesus, He is your life. He is your life. So this Christianity is not just something that's tacked on. So if that's true, if this is our life, then we should understand and and dive as deep as we can into understanding this God that we claim to follow. And that knowledge has a purpose. And the purpose is that it leads us to greater worship and love. Worship is the way that we orient our life or the direction that we point our, all of our life towards. Good doctrine should orient our worship, our lives, and love is the way that that is lived out. So good doctrine, doing its work in our lives, should reorient us, point us towards what is true, and and create in us a life of lived out love it should grow your love for god your affection for god and your love for what he loves which is what john 3:16 god so loved the world this section is on it this one. It is great It's only 1044. Everybody else is going to wake up. I'm going to love it. And I want you to know, I'm all for good doctrine. We as a church are all in on good doctrine. But if doctrine doesn't grow us in love and in the shape of love, which is the shape of Jesus, humble, sacrificial, servant, we are doing it wrong. The Apostle Paul speaks to this. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, I'm gonna paraphrase here. He's like, if I got it all wired and I don't have love, I'm just a bunch of noise. He said, like, I, can, I can speak like how angels speak, but if I don't have love, it'd be like if I just went over there and started hitting the symbols as hard as I could for the next hour. And I'm just making a bunch of noise. In fact, in that same passage, he, he ratchets it up a little bit because he says, if I have all knowledge, if I have all knowledge and if I know all of God's plans, but I don't have love, if I don't have a life that's constantly going lower to sacrifice myself for the good of someone else, if I don't have love, this is extreme. Paul says, I am nothing. So that's where we're gonna go this morning. We're gonna look at this scene in John chapter 18, and and then we're gonna do an overview and an explanation of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement And then I wanna illustrate that doctrine with a story from the Old Testament. So it's a lot to cram in. We're gonna ask God to help us with it. Let me look real quick at these two verses. I'm gonna read what Deborah just again, uh, and then we'll pray and ask God just to be with us. Verse 39, this is Pilate speaking again in John 18. He says, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? It's Jesus. They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas, and now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Let me pray and ask God just to meet with us and to be with us. Father in heaven, we love you. God, you're so good to us. I love what we've already sung about you. God, you are a promise-making God and a promise-keeper God. And God, that refrain of even when we don't see it, you're working. God, we know that you who started a good work will be faithful to complete it. God, I pray that today is another moment where you are working out our faith. God, you are growing up our faith. I thank you that that is not dependent on our uh, effort. God, it's just your goodness towards us. And so God, I pray that today we would take a next step of faith with you. And God, maybe it's somebody in the room who for that very first time confesses you as Lord and Savior. And I'm praying, God, for that. I'm praying that today would be a day of salvation. God, maybe it's for those of us who know you, who walk with you, God, that it would just be a, another deeper level of faith, of trust, of confidence in you. But God, most of all, grow us in love for you and in our love for what you love. And God, all of those things um, cannot take place simply by my own power or or skill. God, it's only by your spirit. Because I'm asking an audacious thing, God. I know it. I'm asking for you to speak to me and through me. God, I'm asking for you to use me to do your good work for your good pleasure. But God, I need you for that. So Holy Spirit, would you come God, would you just overwhelm us with your presence? Would you move with freedom and power? God, would you break chains today? Would you set captives free? Would you illuminate your word? God, would you grow our affection and our heart for you? God, you and you alone can do that. I confess that. I know that. We need you. God, we're desperate for you to move in this moment. So Holy Spirit, come. Have your way. This is your time. This is your word. We are your people. You have dominion and power and rule in this place always. Jesus, I love you so much. I just ask all these things in your powerful name. Amen. So, again, it's important to remember that in all of this, Jesus is not confused, he's not surprised by this moment. If you've looked at what's happened in the last couple, uh, scenes and passages, it can start to feel like what in the world is happening here. His fate and his future, it kind of seems like in this moment, is in Pilate's hands. At least that's what Pilate thinks. Or it's in the hands of the crowd. At least that's what the crowd thinks. But it's only because Jesus is allowing all of this to happen. Pilate is kind of speaking here and operating here as if he is the one who is holding the destiny of these two men. And if you remember what Pastor Jeremy spoke last week, Pilate uh, is conflicted about Jesus because he said already, I really don't find any fault in him. And aside from this mob, aside from this scene, uh, I really don't see what the trouble is with Jesus, but yet Pilate is conflicted. In fact, one of the other gospel writers tells us Pilate's wife actually has a dream or a vision about Jesus and she goes to him and says, let's have nothing to do with this man. Don't get caught up in the middle of this. And so Pilate, uh, in a pretty audacious move, really, uh, stands before the crowd, and he presents to the crowd Jesus, and he says, "Here's Jesus. Uh, He's the King of the Jews. He's actually the King of Kings." Versus Barabbas, who's a murderer and a and a terrorist and and a rebel. And Pilate says, "Okay, Jews, who do you want?" Now, Pilate is doing this because he knows there's a custom that actually harkens back uh, to the Exodus and the very first Passover, and there's a a custom, it's not a law, but it's a custom of the Jewish people that a prisoner would be set free. And again, remember, Pilate finds no fault in Jesus, um, but his conscience is overwhelmed by the voice of the crowd, which we can all empathize with because it happens to us all the time. Our conscience that tells us what's right, that what we know to be right, but the voice of the crowd that is speaking louder than our conscience, and we listen to the voice of the crowd. It's probably why most commentators think that Pilate chose Barabbas because he was trying to get himself off the hook with this little exercise here. And so he's trying to make it as obvious as possible because Barabbas is like the worst guy in the prison. He starts an insurrection. He killed people. He's a bad, bad guy. And Pilate thinks for sure, for sure, given the choice, here's this Jesus, he's a good teacher, he seems like a good man, he heals people, he helps the poor, he's nonviolent. But the crowd does what the crowd always does. The crowd chooses Barabbas. We choose Barabbas. And the reason we choose Barabbas is because honestly, Barabbas doesn't really threaten us. Barabbas really doesn't bother us that much because Barabbas makes no claim on our life. Barabbas does not claim to be king over our lives. Jesus does. Jesus claims to be king over all of your life, every part of your life. Barabbas doesn't make that claim. So we're way more comfortable with a Barabbas than we are with Jesus. So we choose what is in bondage because we feel like that will actually bring us freedom when in truth it is King Jesus who offers us real freedom under his loving rule and reign. Everything, if you've been following this story here, everything with Jesus is just so unfair and unjust. And now on top of that, you have this like public spectacle, this public humiliation of being rejected For a convicted criminal. I don't know if you've ever been uh, picked last for like a team, anybody? Just me? Great, okay. It sucks. This is like infinitely worse. I mean, this is brutal. It's public humiliation. You have a guy who has one of the worst track records, if not the worst track record in society, held up against you in front of the crowd, And you're there in this public spectacle. And they choose him over you. I mean, there's really no comparison. He is a murderer on death row because he is rightfully there. He's guilty. He deserves to be on death row. He deserves his chains. He deserves a brutal death. And what's Jesus done with his life? He's healed Delivered, restored, saved, opened blind eyes, set demon possessed people free from their chains, gave dignity to all those who are shunned by society, goes to the outcast and says, Come have a meal and dinner with me, and fellowship and communion with me. Who do you want, crowd? Give us the murderer, give us the criminal. And so there, the son of God, the creator, the sustainer, the prince of peace, the savior, the sent one from God has to stand there and endure this blasphemous popularity contest. I mean, the same God who spoke stars into existence now has to listen to the voice of mortals who sentence him to death. But we know it's really not the people who decide. Just like it really wasn't the Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross. It was love. It was the sovereignty of God. It was God's perfect plan. Everything that we are seeing, we see the intentionality of Jesus as he marches towards the cross, but all of it is an intentional act of love. Love. Barabbas is released. He doesn't really know he doesn't know who is Jesus. He doesn't really know what's going on. All he knows is that they come and they unlock his door and unlock his chains. And he gets to walk free and he's like, These people must really love me. There's no record where he even glances up to Jesus and says, Thank you, I appreciate that. Or thank you, I'll try to pay you back. I'll try to, you know, kind of redeem it, where at least like I make my life, you know, like some kind of redeemable quality in my life. There's no record of any of, of that. And in all of this, Jesus is silent because he knows the will of the Father. He trusts him. He knows this is the plan because Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat him like Barabbas so that the Father could treat all the Barabbases of the world like Jesus. is a commentator. He says that he who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything so that we who have done everything wrong would be condemned for nothing. Remember, Pilate's not in charge here. The crowd's not the authority here. It was the love of the Father that rules this moment and the love of the Son for the Father that guides his steps. God's redeeming love is what's driving all of this. The cross is not a detour in in otherwise successful ministry of Jesus. The cross has always been the design and the destination of Jesus' life in ministry. Josh Butler is one of the lead pastors at Redemption Church Tempe. He's written several books. One of his books, The Pursuing God, he says this to explain this. He says, the cross is not happening to Jesus. Jesus is happening to the cross. And Jesus' motive is love. He is the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus goes to the cross compelled by affection and driven by desire, moved by longing. He sees the cross as an act of service, explaining his mission. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross is a a signpost of divine love poured out for the world. What's being displayed here is what we call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Thomas Schreiner is a theologian. He talks about it this way. He says, all people are in need of a substitute since all are guilty of sinning against the holy God. We see that in Romans 3. All sin deserves punishment because all sin is a personal rebellion against God himself. While animal sacrifices took on the guilt of God's people in the Old Testament, these sacrifices could never fully atone for the sins of man. For that, Jesus Christ came and died in the place of his people, substitution, taking upon himself the full punishment that they deserved, the penalty. And Jesus Christ took on the full punishment that we deserved for our sins as a substitute in our place and that all other benefits or results of the atonement find their anchor in this truth. So penal substitution means that Christ died in the place of sinners, taking upon himself the penalty and the punishment they deserved. And sin deserves punishment because God is holy, meaning other than, totally unique nothing like him. And breaking the law is not merely an impersonal reality, meaning like, well, it's not hurting anybody. It didn't harm anybody. All sin represents rebellion against God himself. Sin represents a flagrant Refusal to submit to God's lordship, and those who sin rightly deserve the judgment of God. Since God is holy, He judges those who transgress the law. And the Apostle Paul says that God is just to punish people forever with their sin. What it's saying is that sin is so horrific, so gruesome, God cannot even look at it, cannot be in its presence. It's like this. I didn't say this first hour, but it reminded me of this story when my daughter was young. My oldest daughter was real young. We were trying to teach her how to swim, we'd be in the pool, and I would hold her, and trying to get, you, trying to get her used to kind of going underwater, uh, I would, I'd hold her in my arms, and then we would dunk underwater, and then dunk up real quick. And so she would, you know, her face was here, and she'd be looking at me and say, okay, you ready? She's like, no. And we're like, well, we're gonna do it anyway. And so we go under, and she comes up, ah, you know, I'm like waterboarding my <laughs> toddler. Um, well, one of these times, we kind of went down and we kind of came up, And she was looking at me, and she goes, daddy, degusting. I was like, what are you talking about? And she was pointing uh, right here. And what had happened was a wet booger or wooger was on my lip. Anybody grossed out right now? That's cringy. And she said, Daddy, degusting. (laughs) I can't even look at you right now because it's degusting. (laughs) Our sin, which we all have, is degusting. God says, "I I can't even look at it. And so... The deliverer has to take in our decay, has to take in what is disgusting about us in order to make us whole. Jesus joins in our distance in order to bring us home. Because the punishment is exile and death. Butler explains this again in his book. He says, When Adam and Eve rebelled, exile and death were the punishment for sin, eternal separation forever from God, hell. Jesus. Bears that exile and he bears that death on himself. Jesus relives our story, being faithful where we have rebelled to be established as the new head of humanity. Though personally innocent, he takes upon himself the exile and death of his people. Jesus bears our exile and bears our death as the new Adam. The Apostle Paul writes that sin enters the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. Because all sinned. Like Adam, you and I, we've all wanted to be like God, not with God. Remember, that's the the temptation. That's what the accuser, that's what the deceiver brings to them. Do you want to be like God? And they choose that rather than being with God. And they forsake the intimacy that they have with him. They forsake the, the walks in the cool of the day with the garden with him. They they forsake the communion that they have with him so that they can clear independence from him. And we're still trying to do that. But Jesus bears our exile and bears our death, and Paul tells us it's so that he could exhaust the power of death. And so just as sin has reigned in death, that grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The scripture says that Jesus was made like us in every way except one. He did not sin. Jesus endured everything that you and I have endured, except he did not join in the rebellion against the Father that you and I have joined in. And yet, though he had no sin, the scripture says Jesus becomes sin for us. Romans 3, 21 through 26 is kind of the central text on this. The apostle Paul writes this, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, which we could never do anyway. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God one way, church, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God, the superabundance of God Himself, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin and people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. So Paul's saying God's right to do This for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they do what when they believe in Jesus. Paul is essentially saying here, Listen, a right relationship with God cannot be obtained through any work that you would do on your own through keeping the law, only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so it teaches us then that God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's justice are all satisfied in the death of Jesus. In the cross of Christ, God is shown to be loving and holy and merciful and just, the just and justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. And God has not compromised his justice since Christ has borne the penalty deserve for sin, dying as a substitute in the place of sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made the one who did not know sin, Jesus never sinned, to be sin for us. He never did anything degusting, but became degusting for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's this beautiful, totally lopsided exchange. Jesus takes our sin by dying in our place and we receive his righteousness or his rightness. So on the cross, it's not so much that Jesus is being punished instead of humanity as it is that humanity is being punished in Jesus. Jesus bears our exile and death, taking our penalty upon himself, not as an innocent bystander, but as the head of his body, and he does it to exhaust its power and raise us to new life. And the gospel of John has shown us over and over and over again, the father sent the son, but the son rejoiced to do the will of the father. All right, real quick, I wanna just illustrate that doctrine from a story in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, flip to the very first book in your Bible, Genesis chapter 22, Um, Genesis chapter 22, um, and I wanna look at the story. We're gonna look at a man named Abraham. Uh, Abraham is a guy where God came to him, and he said, Abraham, I have a blessing. I have a promise over your life. Uh, And through you, generations and nations will come, and they will be blessed by me. And so he's promising this lineage out of Abraham. Uh, So he says, Abraham, you are gonna have many sons, many sons, many sons, Will Father Abraham have? I'm one of them. So are you. Let's just praise the Lord. I'm trying to figure out how many people were raised in church in this room. So there we go. A few of them. Okay. Right arm. All right. Okay. So in chapter 22, we pick up in Abraham's life. Let me look just at verse one real quick. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. Okay, so Abraham's had a long life. God has came to him and said, I'm gonna bless you. I have this promise over you. There's gonna be just generations that come from you. You're gonna be, you're blessed to be a blessing to so many. He's over 100 years old at this point where we're seeing he's probably about 113 Um, it's been a life of disappointment, a life of hope. It's been a life with some pain. He's actually had some opportunities that he's had to turn down because of his relationship with God and integrity. But ultimately for Abraham, it's been a life of blessing. God's really taken care of him. It's been a full life. And at this moment where we find him in chapter 22, Abraham's in a really good place. Later in life, God's finally given him a son of his own. That was the big deal with, with Abram. So when God came to him, he was old. His wife was, uh, hadn't had any kids. They hadn't had any kids. And God says, I'm going to bless you like crazy. You're going to have so many children. And he's like, well, we don't even have one. So this is going we got a lot of work to do. Um, and he goes a long time without even seeing that promise. Finally, God blesses him, gives him Isaac. Um, and, and, and in fact, Isaac is a name that means laughter. He brought so much joy to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of God's promise in Abraham and Abraham's wife's life. So now Abraham's also kind of settled down. If you know his life, he kind of lives this like nomadic life. In chapter 21, it says that Abraham started planting trees, which is what you do when you finally settle down. So he's on the back end of his life. He's got his son, he's got his tree, he's got his wife geographically where he's at, he's literally kind of like on the Mediterranean coast, so he's just kind of sipping cocktails with his woman and his son. He's, a, he's got a great life. And into that moment, everything is set, everything's good, finally, and God comes to test him. And that conversation starts pretty good. Abraham, he's like, yes, here, God. So good to hear from you again. Immediate response. Look at verse two. Then God said, take your son your only son, as if Abraham needed that clarification, whom you love. We're getting a little closer now. Isaac, extremely specific. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. One thing that you're gonna see in these verses that we're gonna read this morning quickly And in this chapter, it's a little bit different than other parts of the Old Testament. Uh, You see, in other places in the Old Testament, there would normally just be like a few sentences that would explain um, like big swaths of time that had passed, like years would pass with just like a few sentences. Chapter 22 is different in the Old Testament. It, it, It takes its time. It intentionally slows way down. It'd be like it's thematically moving in slow motion so that you would really feel the tension of what's happening here, that you'd really be in the moment of what's taking place in this story and realize what a big deal is. God says to him, take your only son, your heartbeat, your laughter, what you love the most on this planet, and offer him as an lamb. It's a particular kind of sacrifice. It's a, it's a burnt offering. It means the whole thing is to be consumed. There are different kinds of offerings. Some you'd have like a part of the animal that would be cut off. You could eat it later or parts that might be used for something else somewhere, somewhere else. But this sacrifice is to be complete. The whole thing. Completely burned up. Your only son. Verse three says this. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. So uh, not only does Abraham do what God asked him to do, he gets up early to do it. So he doesn't like sleep around. It's it's, it's, it's like, it's instant obedience. It's actually kind kind of odd if you think about it. Abraham, I want you to go kill your boy. Okay, here we go, up and at him. Early to rise. So what's happening here? Because this whole thing, especially if you've been tracking with Abraham's story, this feels like just like twisted. It feels odd. It feels like, wait a minute, who, did somebody else write this part? This does not seem like it fits the story at all. So you're on a three-day journey with your son, your only son, who you love, your laughter, your joy. Again, put yourself in the story. You're Abraham. What are you, what are you thinking? I mean, what could you possibly like, talk about? How do you fill three days of conversation with your son on that journey? Well, the scriptures actually kind of let us in a little bit on what's happening. Uh, In Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 says this, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. So there is a disconnect here. Abraham, here's your son. You're gonna have many descendants through Isaac. Abraham, wake up, go kill your son Isaac. Okay? How can he do that? Verse 19 lets us in on what's happening here. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back. So in Abraham's mind, God told him that from him, there would be generations that bless the whole world, and Isaac is the firstborn of that promise, but yet God wants me to kill Isaac. Well, I guess God's just going to have to bring Isaac back to life. But what's crazy about that is that people coming back to life from the dead is not really a thing. I mean, we who've kind of like looked at the life of Jesus or we know the New Testament stories, we know, we know about that. We've seen Jesus do that. We know about Jesus calling forth Lazarus from the grave. Abraham doesn't know any of those stories. Abraham has no idea. That's not a thing. It's not like there's stories. It's not like there, there's legend of that that's happening. But Abraham knows, God, you are faithful to your promises, so I'm gonna let you take care of all the details on how you keep those promises. This is not the point of the message, but it is a great point to remember that God, you can do things I've never even seen or heard of to bring about your promises and purposes in my life. That's the kind of faith that Abraham has here. He says, I don't understand it all, but I trust you with everything, so I'm gonna do what you say. Because Abraham's lived a life where he's seen what happens when he obeys God and he's seen what happens when he does it his own way. When I obey God, God, there's flourishing. God brings about blessing. When I do things my own way, my life devolves into chaos. And so he might not fully understand what's happening, but he's, wi- he's willing to admit, I'm not God, you are, so I trust you, God. Here's my life, here's what's most important to me, I'm gonna give it to you, I'm gonna be faithful to obey your word, and I'm gonna trust you with the details. Look at verse five, we're gonna quickly move through the rest of the story. He said to his servants when they get to the place, stay here with the donkey, while I and the boy go over there, we, listen to what he says, we, Will worship and then we will come back to you. He's like, I don't know how, but God's gonna figure that part out. Look at verse six. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his own son Isaac. And as he himself carried the fire and the knife, as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He's a bright young lad. He's like, we've done this lots of times before. There's a key component that's missing for when we normally do this. Verse eight, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I don't think Abraham's trying to be like coy or slick or sly. I think he's being honest. I don't know how this is gonna work out, but I know that God's working for my good, so I'm going to obey Look like at verse nine. Again, don't just listen to this like it's a flannel graph-like story. Flannel graph's like this whole other thing. I, I can't explain it. But it's like a magic way of pictures that stick to a piece of material. I don't, it was great. Anyway, don't just listen to this as if it's like a story that didn't happen. Put yourself in the story as you listen to verse nine. Listen to verse, listen to verse nine. This is, this is powerful. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there. You're Abraham. You have to kill your only son. You're building an altar. What's going through your mind as you stack the rocks on top of each other? He arranged the wood on it. Each piece of wood you lay on the altar that you will light on fire and your son, your only son, will lay on that fire. What's going through your mind? Now, Isaac um, is not like a little kid. He's, scholars think he's about like 13 years old, which is, means that you have to outrun a guy who's 100 years older than you. I think you could do that. But he doesn't. Because it says he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you take what is most precious to you and put it on the altar? They trust God. They trust God. Look at, look at verse 10. It says this, then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. It's cra- I mean, God lets him get that far. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. This is the greatest interruption in the history of interruptions. I've never wanted to hear your voice more, God, than right now. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. I mean, God lets him go that far. He could have stopped him when Abraham woke up real early and packed up the donkeys. God couldn't be like, hey, I can tell you're serious. You didn't even sleep in. I have another plan. There's a whole three days they're riding together. God could have showed up at any time there. God could have stopped him when they're up on the mountain. When Isaac says, Hey, God, uh, or Hey, Dad, no lamb here. God could have said, You did it, guys. Thanks for the faithfulness. God lets the knife be in the air above the sun. He says, Whoa, that's enough. Look at verse 13. It ends with this, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Mount Moriah means the place to meet with God and Abraham names the place Yahweh Yirah Jehovah Jireh, the place where God provides. Because when you decide, I'm going to trust God with every part of my life, it's not just that you meet with God, you get to see God provide for your life. But the greatest thing to happen here to Abraham is that he gets to see a deeper part of God's heart more than anyone else. When you say, God, all of my life is yours, what's most precious to me is yours, God gives you access to the deepest part of his heart. Psalm 25, 14 the Lord confides in those who fear him. Think about that. The Lord confides in you, in me, when we revere him to such a level that we say, God, you can have every single part of my life. He makes his covenant known to them. Galatians 3, so also Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What Paul is saying there is Abraham got to hear the gospel before anyone else. He heard that the whole world would be blessed through him. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And scripture does not say, and to seeds meaning many people, but to, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Abraham standing on that mountain in a moment of worship, God reveals to him the solution for humanity's greatest problem that we could never solve on our own. It's ultimately the picture of another son, a greater son, who would walk another hill in perfect obedience to and in accordance to the will of his father. Abraham laid the wood on the back of his son Isaac and made him carry it up the mountain. Jesus would carry his own wooden cross to be a sacrifice for us. And when it came time for Abraham to sacrifice his son, God said, No, that's enough. There's only one father who will have to see that through. It's not you, Abraham. It's not your son. It's mine. My son will provide the shed blood for all the awful things that my children will do. It's not gonna be your son, Abraham. It's gonna be mine. When Jesus was hung on the cross, Jesus was pierced God's son was pierced so that Isaac wouldn't be, so that you wouldn't be, so that I wouldn't be. God sacrificed his son for the blessing of the whole world that all the horrible, horrific things that we have done and that have been done to us would be paid for, atoned for by that God-man, Jesus. I wanna invite the band up. We're gonna move into a moment of communion. But as I close It's important for us to remember the story of Barabbas matters to us because we are Barabbas. The the name Barabbas means son of a father. That's me and that's you. We are just human, average, everyday descendant of Adam, born in sin. We're, we're sons and daughters of some good dads or maybe not so good dads, but just humans and any bondage or chain that we might be in, any prison that we are in, we deserve it. We've earned it. Jesus is the Father's son. The eternal inheritance is rightfully his because he And he alone is perfection personified. He alone deserves all glory and honor and worship and praise. But he lets this undeserving criminal, this villain, go free. It pleased the father for the son to die for the Barabbases of the world. And I can't even comprehend that. Because Barabbas never did anything to warrant that. But God loved Barabbas. Barabbas. And just like God sets Barabbas free, God wants to set you free. While we're still sinners, while we're still enemies, while there's still enmity enmity between us and God, Christ died for us. That grace, that unmerited favor and forgiveness and freedom is available today. And whether you've never known freedom before, whether you've never heard this good news before, or you've known it, but you've once again returned to the chains, the invitation is still the same. Come to me, Jesus says. All who are under heavy burdens, come to me. All who are in prison, all who are enslaved, all who are in bondage, come to me and find Rest find freedom for your souls and that 's the invitation this morning that 's the invitation that 's around the table that 's the invitation that 's in this moment are, are you are you bound? Are you in chains are you in bondage? are you held under the power of temptation and sin and shame? do you feel controlled, enslaved, and imprisoned because you cannot Work your way out from under the power of Satan and sin and death. You are no match. You have no power. You can't do it. The answer is not within yourself. It's not your own merit. It's not your own discipline. It's not your own willpower. None of that will save you. There's only one And he took your place and he's the one who stood silently on that platform of humiliation and disgrace while the crowd chanted for a murderer's release and he stands here today wanting to see you go free in Jesus' name. Every week here we take communion together Where we celebrate that our freedom from Satan, sin, and death is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. We are guilty. Our sin deserves exile and hell. But the body and the blood of Jesus, the cup and the bread, those elements on your chairs around you, they speak a better word. They speak of freedom and hope. They speak of love. They speak the reality that you cannot set yourself free it's only Jesus. It's only ever been Jesus. It's still Jesus. It will always be Jesus. It will never stop being the power of the blood of Jesus that sets you free from the power of sin yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the good news, the gospel is that Jesus came and lived a life that we never could. He died the penalty that was due on us and he conquered Satan, sin, the grave. He is risen, he is alive, and he is returning and he loves you. The you that you are right now, today. Not the you that says, I should probably fix myself up and come back and take another run at this next week because there's no way that he loves me right now as I sit. No, right now. You are loved and prized by majesty. And the Father gave his only son to be completely consumed so that you wouldn't have to be. It's amazing. It's the greatest news to ever hit planet Earth. And if all your hope is just in that, then the elements are for you. Um, If you're not a Christian, by your own admission, your own confession, you'd say, well, uh, that doesn't describe me. Uh, There is a warning here, uh, and the warning is that you shouldn't think just by taking that bread and taking that cup that that's gonna save you, uh, because that's not it. This is something we do in celebration and in remembrance of what God has done, and that's the thing that saves you. But there's tremendous opportunity right now for you if you've not yet experienced life with Jesus, freedom from sin, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, freedom from death, it's available right now. And it's by you coming in repentance and faith, a simple confession. I am Barabbas. I'm a prisoner and I, I've earned it. I, I see that. And God, I, I, I've i tried to find freedom. I've tried to find rest in a million things and none of them. So God, I'm, I'm trusting that you or who you say you are. I'm trusting that what you say is available to me is because of what you've done. And I just want to invite you, we want to invite you just to have that conversation with God right now. God, if that's true, would you reveal it to be true to me? And then we we stand and sing, and we're gonna sing this song. That's an old song, it's been around for a long time. But what we sing about, for those of us who experience this grace, It never gets old. So eat and drink in remembrance and celebration of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then let's sing and celebrate him.